When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History. As you all know, Britain is the greatest maritime nation on planet Earth. About this, there can be no debate. And it's also impossible to deny that I love talking about that history on this little podcast of mine. And today we're going to take a luxuriant cruise through British maritime history. Because I've got Tom Nancullis on the podcast. He's a building conservationist, he's a writer, he is of Cornish ancestry, and he's written a beautiful book that attracted a lot of attention here a year or two ago called The Ship Asunder. He looked at 11 relics that together tell the story of Britain and the sea. We met at the Chalk Valley History Festival last year, so you can hear this a live conversation. Some of you were there in the flesh listening to this wonderful scholar talking about some pieces of ships, these tiny fragments that act as a lens and allow us to see the wider ship and the piece of history that they represent. From objects carried by the sailors, to pieces of mast, to bits of ships' hulls incorporated in other buildings, these are the traces that our maritime history has left behind. And me and Tom, we investigate those traces. We're on the case. You're going to love it. Enjoy. T-minus 10. The atomic bomb dropped Five. on Hiroshima. Eight. God save the king. No black-white unity till there is Five. first some black unity. Never to go to war with one another Two. again. And liftoff. And the shuttle has cleared the tower. Thank you. Tom, do you write as a historian, a lover of the sea, uh, with experience of it? Are you a sailor yourself? Um, no, actually, Dan, I write as a total landlubber. That's the, that's the perspective I wanted to bring because no one in Britain is very far from the sea. Look at your family histories. I myself have a couple of seafarers. Most people do, really. So I wanted to celebrate the romance that we all feel about the glorious past that you mentioned just there. And some um, identifying episodes as well, of course. But uh, what is interesting for me, and you bring this out in your book, is how central the sea was in our public life until very recently. You've got the Liverpool-Manchester Railway in 1830, and that's really when the rot sets in. And then with, obviously, modern communications, roads, container ports, and ships requiring less crew, we have lost that connection with the sea in some ways, haven't we? A lot of authors like to talk about this idea of sea blindness, the idea that we see it less, even though it's there all the time. But actually, in 
putting this book together, I became convinced that that wasn't as much the case as is often said. I think you look at the, the marinas of Britain and it's full of you know, yachts, pleasure craft, other things. People used to see for fun, for pleasure and leisure in huge quantities. And I think we have a kind of latent seafaring potential still there today. A new age of sail, maybe, especially if you look at the, um, the cargo ships now, like New Dawn sailors that are carrying imperishable goods from the South Americas and the like. People are thinking, well, actually, these huge container ships with all of the fuel they burn, are they the right thing to be doing now? So a new age of sale possibly who knows that's true that's true there are millions of boat owners or watercraft owners in the uk whether it's a paddleboard um, right up to a big yacht what's really interesting about this book is you go around the country looking for those echoes of our maritime mm. past mm. and you decided to do that through well really fragments of ships that have been incorporated into our terrestrial life well, totally, Dan, yeah. So the question I set myself was, what has become of the great ships of the past? You know, ships were the actors, the protagonists of human history until very recently, really, as well as the people, the ships that carried them to these places and bore them on their way with their names, with their glorious stories behind them. Think of Bellerophon, you know, the ship on which Napoleon surrendered, which bore Nelson's body back to Britain. You know, what has become of that vessel? And the easy answer, the obvious answer is that it's disappeared. It's not strictly true, actually. And the fates of many ships are what I try and bring out in the book. Um, It's more complex than it first appears. Bellerophon, for instance, broken up in Devonport in the 1830s. Parts of her found her way um, into a house built by the ship's surgeon who bought some of her timbers long after she was broken up. And why he would want to live surrounded by the timbers of the ship he sawed off legs and arms and stuff in, it's a question which fascinated me. I love that. That ship was known as the Billy Ruffian Mm. by, uh, by Nelson's men. And so were you surprised when you started looking for these things? How did you come across all these fragments of some of the great ships in our history that are incorporated into houses and buildings and churches mm. around the mm. UK? How did you, where do you start looking for those things? Well, you start with myths and start with local places. And above all, this is a book about uh, the places all around us that have the most surprising maritime connections. It's about the oceans under your feet, really, which exist even quite far inland. There's a whole rumour mill and sort of hearsay attached to certain buildings. And it was a lovely challenge to try and prove or disprove those things. For instance, there's a church in Cornwall called St. Nicholas Lou, where I was able to verify the often told rumour that timbers from HMS San Joseph, a first-rate ship of the line that was captured by Nelson in the Battle of St. Vincent, 1797, were incorporated into this church when it was enlarged. You go there today and you have these wonderful old beams with a seemingly heft in the gloom, you know, just looming out at you. And the whole thing seems to creak in high winds as well, which is quite interesting. One of two ships captured by Nelson at that battle, as you all know. Nelson's Bridge is the word for one ship of the line that he crossed in order to capture the second one. It was on Valentine's Day. Mm. So whenever I walk around on Valentine's Day, I like seeing all these young lovers out celebrating Nelson's great achievement there. Nice of them to keep that tradition alive. So you've got the church in Lou. I really enjoyed that. Mm. Where else? What other ship fragments do you find? They are in the most unlikely place, Dan, and I urge everybody here listening to go out and um, look at stuff that you think you know well and see what exists. For instance, those who are Liverpool fans in the audience, I myself am one as well, may or may not know that the mast from the Great Eastern, the last surviving bit of that enormous vessel, um, now stands as Anfield's flagpole in Liverpool. That's quite a weird kind of idea, isn't it? It's an amazing idea. In that chapter, I just want to stop you there because that's so interesting. Eisenbard Kingdom Brunel, we know about his wonderful ship in Bristol, 
It's been preserved, rebuilt, one of the great museum ships of the world. Mm. But tell me about the Great Eastern. Well, the Great Eastern is his largest and last vessel. Brunel is so well known for so many things. And actually, his career as a shipbuilder plays second fiddle to his sometimes in in the stories of the man. Um, There's that famous image of him with huge chains behind him. Yeah, the famous image of Brunel, yeah. Yeah, and he's actually in the shipyard where Great Eastern was constructed. And the look on his face there, I think, is that of a shipbuilder yet to see his vessel float because he was building this very, very large ship at the time, the largest ship in the world and was for a couple of decades afterwards, built so vastly in order to carry as much coal as possible to Australia and back without the need to refuel, built as a prototypical ocean liner, um, actually, but almost a couple of decades too early for this purpose. And she didn't really find success economically in that venture. So sort of limped around the coastlines um, thereafter being sold between various owners as a kind of novelty because she was a novelty. She's so big, 30 thousand hull plates of iron each weighing between three and five tons went into her construction iron which by the way was pickaxed from the fields of the north and the midlands not in the thames where she was built so she's actually a ship of the north in my eyes really anyway so she was used as a a liner that kind of didn't work out so another use was found for her and this came along really sort of serendipitously this particular use and that was laying the undersea telegraph cables between the world's continents she was the only ship big enough to be able to do this work to carry the thousands of miles of cable in her belly so she did she was a great success she wired together america and britain britain and india um, and various other places but in doing so dad i think what's so interesting about this is that she brought about the decline of ships as carriers of news because news now raced under the seas right between continents through the cable and news was the most prestigious cargo that ships carried really wasn't it you know news of world events seismic events battles being fought won or lost all things which could affect the fortunes of an ocean. So here was a ship, which, by the way, was a hybrid ship, so steam power with six sails, one for each day of the week except Sunday. And all that remains of her is a mast. And a mast was the thing which once meant muse, but no longer after she did her work. So a really interesting, poignant tale there. And at the time, it was launched on the Thames. They couldn't launch it down the slipway stern first because it was longer than the Thames was wide. It was smashed into the other bank. Everything about this vessel was kind of a bit um, tragicomic in a way, you know. She was ultimately a misfit. She was too big for her surroundings everywhere she went. She never quite succeeded at anything she did except the one thing she did, which turned out to be a hammer blow to the prestige of ships everywhere in a very small way or growing way. And then she was laid up in the Mersey and broken up. And it took two years, 200 labourers and a newly invented wrecking ball to take her to pieces because she's so well made. Um, And now all that remains of this vast iron behemoth is a mast, which is quite ironic, really, when you think about as a steam vessel. Yeah, it is wonderfully ironic. And I love that moment where they're dropping it sideways down the slipway into the Thames and it gets stuck. And no one in history has ever moved this large and heavy an object before, ever. Yes, that's right. I mean, Brunel, as you say, it's so remarkable. I really liked your bit when you went to the Scilly Isles and Mm. looked at figureheads, because I've I've been there. I don't know if anyone's been to the Scilly Isles here. There's a few nods, good see. They were notorious wreckers and retrievers, weren't they, on a good day? And I like the way that the squire comes in and says, you've got to stop wrecking and retrieving. And he starts collecting all these (laughs) things that come off shipwrecks. What's it called? Valhalla. Yeah, Yeah. Valhalla. 
Well, those who've been to uh, the Sillies will know Tresco, where the, the nicest, most courtliest style in many ways, has this really strange collection of figureheads. Not like a collection you see in the dockyards or in museums where they're arranged in a sort of typical kind of curatorial way. But here they're shoved into a purpose-built folly, sea folly really, made by this guy, Augustus Smith, the squire of the islands. And they're displayed a collection of 19th century mercantile figureheads, which again is quite unusual because such figureheads usually weren't thought of as being worth preserving long after their ships had been broken up. Um, yet this guy did, and he was a sort of curious mix of passionate reformer, scientifically minded, progressive, took on the Scilly Isles and reformed them, improved them, resulted in improvements to the agriculture and economies of the islands. But he was a romantic at heart, and that's what I really like about him. You know, he was fascinated by these relics of the Age of Sail, which was then dwindling, you know, in the mid-19th century. In his diary, he talks about seeing steamships increasingly appearing around the islands. So I think he was gathering together these figureheads as relics of the immediate past, which he himself knew, but also as symbols of something older and stranger and more powerful, because that's what figureheads are about, aren't they? Superstition and the belief that the ship contends with forces huger than itself and the need to propitiate those forces or to basically just obtain luck, however you might try. And you point out in that that the Royal George was fleeing down the channel after, well, was strategically withdrawing down the channel after a, a large Franco-Spanish fleet entered the channel in the American Revolutionary War. And a sailor on the Royal George put eye covers over the king's figurehead at the front so that poor, the former king would not have to witness this terrible scene of a great British ship kind of retreating. They symbolised the kind of soul of the vessel. Yeah, definitely. They symbolised the vessel's soul. They had eyes so the ship could see. That was another really important point. So without eyes, how could the ship navigate safely and competently? But also, when a ship is broken up, they're the parts of a ship which are most obviously recognisable as coming from a ship, right? Because they're unmistakably made for a prow or for the bow of a ship, in contrast to things like bits of hull timbers, bits of hull metalwork, which may not immediately speak of the seafaring connections that those items have, the figurehead is about the sea and it's about facing down a really difficult wind or difficult sea conditions and guiding everybody to safety. I think of figureheads really, Dan, actually, as a kind of folk art, because that's what they are. And they're artists who are often unsung, not very famous individual ship carvers had their works displayed on the international stage in comparison to more formally trained artists, which I think is an interesting point. So what's the earliest ship or boat that you're interested in the book? Where, how far back do you go? Well, to the Middle Bronze Age, really, um, which is deep history, as you all will know. And the earliest vessel we have any substantive remains of in Britain is the Dover boat, which is really kind of beautifully neat, isn't it? Because Dover is this ancient seafaring location. It's the closest point in, in England to France. It's the shortest channel crossing. It's still the shortest channel crossing. It has a millennia year old visible history, but actually goes much, much further back than that below the soil. And in the late 90s, during the building of a bypass, what was discovered there in the soil was this Middle Bronze Age vessel with its bow, prow, pointing out to sea, having been richly scuttled or dismembered so it couldn't sail again. It's this beautifully enigmatic thing which looks a bit like a sort of Oxford or Cambridge river punt, that kind of appearance with a sort of flat, scoop-like prow. And we have no idea what it was used for. It might have been a mobile kind of general store or a yacht, maybe, who knows? Or indeed a P&O ferry, early precursor of. Let's hope they treat their sailors better back then. And the thing is, it's preserved now in the Dover Museum and it has this sense about it of seafaring in its first bloom, the infancy of seafaring, the start of it all. And you get that because it's this very fragile looking craft because it's so ancient, but also because the hull timbers were stitched together with fibers of yew. There's not a single nail or mechanical fixing anywhere in this vessel. 
which is for me by itself mind-boggling because how could such a fragile sounding thing resist the great forces of the channel even on a calm day yet it did well worth a look it's very very difficult to see in that museum because it's very dark it's conditions approximate to the soil um, but you will be rewarded you listen to dan snow's history talk about britain's maritime history more after this I'm a spy, doing whatever spies do. But what am I going to whip out of my pocket next? Careful. In this special month of Patented, we're celebrating the 70th anniversary of James Bond by having a look at some of the inventions that have changed espionage. From gadgets and their creators, to the cars and cocktails that make Bond look oh so effortlessly cool. Join me, Campbell, Dallas Campbell, on Patented, A History of Inventions, where I will have my can on a string up against the walls of some of the best historians in this field. Look forward to your company. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you're using messaging apps, They shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. (laughs) 
So then let's come forward. There's no Roman vessels, is there, I don't think, in the book? No, we don't have any substantive survivals, really. And those that we do, that I'm aware of at least, were found quite early on in the 20th century or 19th century when archaeology and the science of preservation was not where it is now. There was one Roman vessel actually found during the construction of County Hall in London, where the LCC was based on the South Bank. And it was discovered in the 30s. And what they did was injected every single timber with glycerin to try and preserve it. Um, And sadly, it all just crumbled into dust and is boxed up somewhere in the archives there. But no, we don't have a typically Roman vessel. We don't have a trireme, for instance. We don't have any bronze chisel-like prows, which these vessels possessed, as we know. So that's a tantalizing gap. And even into the Dark Ages, well, I shouldn't say Dark Ages, just early early medieval, we have very few traces. We have imprints left in the soil by vessels like this. The most famous is the Sutton Hoo ship, rather than the actual survivals. So it's only really when we get into the medieval period that we start to have big chunks of hull and other such things. What's the earliest one that you deal with in the book then? Well, the earliest thing um, is not a ship itself, actually, but a ship's trumpet from the Middle Ages, which is a very rare thing to find, actually. Dropped overboard in Billingsgate some point in the 13th century. Billingsgate in London being then the the chief fish market of London. And found in the 1980s during excavations on Billingsgate Lorry Park after the market had closed. And it's this beautiful, long-stemmed golden trumpet in four sections. And we know it was a ship's trumpet because in the medieval port seals, the really sort of interesting documentary evidence of the appearance of ships at this time, we see trumpeters in the sterns of these vessels blowing uh, commands to the crew, essentially, relaying the captain's orders from the captain to the crew. And you can see them climbing up the rigging to set sail, dropping the anchor, etc. What's so fascinating to me about that is it speaks of a juvenilia of seafaring at this time. I mean, medieval vessels were, of course, seaworthy. They were accomplished. There was a lively shipping industry in Britain at this time, you know, trade with the continent, with the Baltic, etc. But there's still this tentative sense of creeping from coast to coast, from haven to haven, not striking out into the depths of the open ocean, which comes with the Elizabethan seafaring. And a little before then in the case of Scotland, which is actually very different and has its own fascinating seafaring traditions. So the ship's trumpet represents, for me, a kind of seafaring adolescence that Britain seems to have at this time. Communication at sea's heart. It is. It's well, a noisy old place. It is, Dad. Are you a seafarer? Yes. Yeah, so you'll, you'll, you'll I mean, know. I'm not, I, wouldn't put, I wouldn't call myself a great sort of seafarer, but I like going on boats. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's hard. It's very difficult to make yourself heard and understood on ships, but also essential. Yes, indeed. And what I love is this trumpet was such an awkward object to have on a cramped boat deck. You, know, when you might just hit people with it and stuff like that. And it's easy to see why it fell out of favour and was replaced by a whistle, a bosun's whistle, which is obviously far more convenient. And do you talk about the Mary Rose? Well, other writers, more august than me, have treated the Mary Rose dance, so I gave it a wide berth. What I did want to touch on there was the experiences of a diver who was sent down oh, to yes. try and raise some of the cannon from the Mary Rose, a guy called Jacques Francis, who was originally from Africa and one of the earliest uh, recorded black people in Britain, who was employed as a specialist freediver, which is quite amazing. And we have his voice recorded in the court documents that you report. Yeah. So his voice swims up from the depths, literally from the depths of history. One of the first black people to have their voice recorded, which is really, really Because someone was suing someone else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The law is always there somewhere. Exactly. Perfect. Where do you go on from that sort of high medieval period into the early modern? Well, yeah, I mean, the Elizabethan period obviously is the one everybody kind of thinks of as the start of seafaring. 
in some ways it is. It's a convenient place to ascribe the start of ocean going to, even though that's quite a, a sort of oversimplification in some ways. But the galleons, the stories of the great seafarers like Drake and Raleigh, etc., loom large in the national mind, and they have done for many centuries. I mean, think of the Victorians putting up statues to Drake on Plymouth Hoe, you know, to commemorate his activities when Britain then still had a very large, vast imperial navy. There was this inspiration, this going back to these very early Elizabethan seafaring figures. But what I find so fascinating about the Elizabethans is that we, again, have very little evidence of what their ships actually looked like and almost nothing of the ships themselves. Yet these were famous, really, and they are famous. Golden Hinds and the Ark Rally, the Squirrel of Humphrey Gilbert. These are names which loom large in history, yet we know almost nothing about them. The typical galleon or the images of ships detailed from that time are very rare. There's a lovely bundle of papers in the Pepys Library in Magdalen College, Cambridge, called Fragments of Ancient English Shipwright Tree, um, which is a bit of a mouthful. But it's the only basically surviving bundle of Elizabethan ship blueprints that we have by a shipwright called Matthew Baker, who was one of the first in the 16th century to start writing down, calculating the ship's lines on paper instead of tracing them on a tracing floor. Early shipwrights, in fact, built like cathedral builders did, really, because they did the same things. They traced moulds out on tracing floors and assembled the members from there. In the late 16th century, we moved to paperwork, we moved to calculations. I can't even make sense of Matthew Baker's long division, but I was never much of a mathematician. Anyway, those are very important because they give us a sense of flavour of what things like Golden Hind actually look like. Incidentally, all that survives of Golden Hind now is a chair in a library in Oxford. This is another point I try to bring out in the book, which is what has become of the great ships of the past? Well, some of them have been reincarnated as other things, as objects, as chairs, as tables, as keepsakes, as bureaus, as heirlooms, basically. And there's, I think, in this country, in parlours up and down the land, on mantelpieces, on shelves, in cabinets, there's millions of pieces, tiny pieces of the great ships of the past just lying there, radiating a kind of quiet intensity, which is quite something. I've got a lot of bits of HMS Victory in my house. <laughs> yeah. not, uh, not as much as I'd like, yeah. but lots of little teeny fragments. Yeah. Uh, obtained legally, folks, don't panic. I wasn't <laughs> chipping bits off. <laughs> For the greatest seafaring nation on Earth, we do have a fleet of historic ships, but actually there are amazing gaps, aren't there, in what we've been able to retrieve from the past. Yes, totally. And actually, the historic fleet is not as well known as it should be, really. You have some amazing, quite significant vessels like HMS Unicorn in Dundee. Unicorn being an almost completely original early 19th century frigate, which was built in Chatham, towed up to Dundee, didn't have a sails then, and then immediately mothballed. So we have this incredible, intact example, authentic example of a museum ship. Because the museum ship does by itself, I think, raise interesting philosophical questions. It's like triggers broom in, you know, only fools and horses. Like if bits of it have been replaced enough times, it's still the same broom. And actually, I think there does come a point with historic ships where they become effigies of their former selves. The outlines are there and they're beautiful, but the fabric has been lost, right? The fabric has been substituted too many times. There's a lovely example of that as well in Port Merion in North Wales, the Italianate fantasy village by Sir Clough Williams Ellis, the architect of the 20th century. He built an actual stone effigy of his yacht, which he lost in a gale on a sandbank called the Amos Reunis. And that concrete vessel is moored at the quayside forevermore in Port Merion, which is quite fascinating. And that's one way to answer the question, how do we, should we remember the great ships of the past, build stone effigies of them in every port? Bit unrealistic, I grant you. How do you feel when you walk around Cutty Sark or Victory that have been extensively rebuilt? Do you feel they're not essentially the ships as they once were? No, I feel madly in love with them, to be honest. 
I think especially with the experiences you can get at places like Victory and Great Britain, you know, the staff there and the organisations who've cared for them and given them a new lease of life and displayed them have done such sterling work, actually. The one criticism I would make, actually, is of um, the Katisak and the way that the architectural thing that that ship now sits in, it's a bit over-egging it, to be honest, you know, all of that glassy thing. I think it would have just been better in a simpler way. But no, I think they have a very important role to play in conjuring up the great ships of the past, but also giving us that sort of proportional sense of what it was like below decks, you know, the cramped confines of the gun decks at Victory. Even the replica of Golden Hind in Southwark has an important role to play. It may not be totally accurate because we can never know what Golden Hind actually was like in measurement form, but a very evocative experience. Isn't that the point? We want to evoke these things and celebrate them. I love any historic ship, um, no matter how rebuilt it is. Mm. The essence remains. Mm. On this amazing journey that took you from Scotland to Scillies to Kent, what do you reflect on the country as you're moving through it today and what it owes to our maritime past? I suppose the key thing is nowhere in Britain is very far from the sea. And that's true both in distance terms. I think the furthest place in land is about 70 miles from the nearest tidal salt water. Last month, I did a sponsored walk there on a line. I walked from Port Merion to the place in land furthest from the sea, carrying an oar like Odysseus is advised to do in the Odyssey to break the seafaring curse upon him. That was a very quick walk, actually. It didn't take very long. Um, and there was still like a sea shanty group. There was a museum of maritime history. And this is in Litchfield. So it's not very far away anywhere you go here. Um, and actually, I spoke earlier of the oceans beneath our feet. You'd be amazed at the connections unlikely looking places now have, particularly those with medieval prominence, because medieval port cities and harbours often have been changed by tidal conditions, erosion, silting, so that they now look like inland places. Winchelsea is a very good example of that down in Sussex, where you have a, a port that was so important when it was washed away by a storm in the 13th century. Edward I himself ordered its rebuilding and a new sort of pattern, a new street layout on a site nearby because of its importance to the wine trade with Gascony. And now Winchelsea, though, because of the silting of its harbour in the early modern period, its seafaring coastline and stuff has moved far away and it now looks like a bucolic country town and you'd think it was until you set foot in any one of the 33 medieval cellars that Winchelsea has below it a remarkable group of these spaces which actually don't survive very much across the country they were built to store barrels of wine and as showrooms and tasting rooms for medieval wine cellars could you have kept going I mean you chose uh, 11 Fragments of ships, presumably there's many more out there. There are so many fragments we have. There is so much to say. I really wished I could have written, for instance, about Scapa Flow in Orkney, you know, where the remains of the German Grand Fleet lie below the waters. And interestingly, a source of low radiation metal to this day, because, of course, they were sunk there before the atom bombs were detonated. There are many more. And low radiation metal is important for making hospital equipment and stuff, right? So they, yeah, yeah. they tear sheets of metal off these wrecks that were sunk before 1945 and they have particular uses today. I think I'd go to the dentist more if they had tools made from the Grand Fleet, actually. Darn um, right. As long as the tools weren't used on the Grand Fleet <laughs> at the time, that wouldn't be very nice. <laughs> Speaking of Grand Fleet, it was an act of barbarism not to keep a super dreadnought era battleship in this country. It's unbelievable. I'm never going to stop being angry about that. Yeah. But that's an interesting point they've done, actually, because it shows to our eyes a curious way in which ships were viewed. They were viewed both with a huge ladle of sentimentality and a huge ladle of realism. And actually, things like Bellerophon, these great battleships, the extraordinary investments of their day by the governments of their day, just unsentimentally broken up, sold for scrap, etc., just let go of it. It's hard 
hard to fathom, isn't it? Especially ones with such significance. The only time it's really happened, that sort of deliberate preservation of the vessel is victory. Well, Elizabeth first tried it with Golden High, yeah. but nobody really knew what they were doing. So within 30 years, it looked like the bleach skeleton of a horse, apparently. Which is quite a I, I like the way they tried to get, keep Golden High. If you ever want to make yourself very depressed, folks, go and Google Napoleonic-era battleships that almost made it through to the present day. So many that made it through to the era of photography, for example, as you can see, one got shipwrecked on Blackpool Beach. Mm. Uh, it's very sad. Mm. The Foudroyant, I think, was sunk in gunnery practice by the Royal Navy in like the 40s or something. <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Flying the French tricolor and the ensign. The two flags under which she served. I love it. Last question. Even as we've got more sea blind, very few of us will have worked at sea and seem to depend on the sea day to day for our living. Do you think that deep connection is still, do you still see it as you travel around Britain? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. People still are fascinated by seafaring history is what is my experience of it. And there are still a great many people today with practical seafaring experience. My father-in-law does. You know, there are many people who worked in the Merchant Navy, the Merchant Marine. One of the great unsung stories, actually, the Merchant Marine. Its importance to Britain cannot be overestimated. As I said before, it's all there latently swimming around in our subconscious, in the nation's fabric as well. And I think, you know, as we turn to wind as a power form again, it feels like steam and engines were just some kind of vast interregnum, actually. So who knows what the future holds? I think that feels very true. Tom, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.